Hello and welcome to the next episode of Pharmacast, the official School of Pharmacy podcast from the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Dr. Dan Corbett. I'm a senior lecturer in digital education here at the School of Pharmacy. This podcast is the next in the series of our research podcasts in the research theme. Um, and I have the pleasure of being joined by three very esteemed researchers from across the university today, including from our very own School of Pharmacy. So delighted to be joined by Professor Jennifer McKinley from the School of Natural and Built Environment. Uh, by Professor John McGrath from the School of Biological Sciences and by Dr Deidre Gilpin from the School of Pharmacy as well. What we're going to focus in on today um, in in this particular episode um, is really around the wastewater surveillance programme that touches a little bit on COVID and and a previous research podcast that Deirdre had also joined us for around the LAMP Lab as well. So we'll learn a little bit more about that. We'll talk about how this works, some of the challenges um, and all of those types of things as well. But before we get into that, I thought it might be a good idea for the three of you guys to introduce yourselves. So Jenny, maybe if I start with yourself, if you can tell us a little bit about you, your research interests, and then we'll pass on maybe to Deirdre and then on to John. Hi, uh, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here and join my colleagues. Um, so yeah, I'm Jenny McKinley. Um, I'm based in geography in the School of Natural and Built Environment. Um, and I suppose my research interest is in spatial data analysis. Um, so I use geographical information science um, and different types of mathematical geoscience techniques to look at the importance of where things are and then to analyze them using that information. Stuff. Deirdre, yourself? Yeah, so I'm Deirdre Gilpin and uh, again it's great to be here Dan. Um, so my background is really looking at infection and microbiology, particularly with chronic lung infections. So that's how we got kind of drawn into the world of, of COVID and eventually into the world of wastewater. And John, yourself? Yeah, so I'm uh, John McGrath um, and from the School of Biological Sciences and Institute for Global Food Security and I'm a professor of environmental microbiology here at Queen's and my research interests have, have really always been in um, wastewater and um, looking at how uh, uh, pollutants can, can be removed and recycled um, within wastewater um, and really, essentially, I, I work on sewage, which is which is always a, a conversation ender when people <laughs> ask you uh, what what you do for a living. Okay, great stuff. Thanks very much again to the three of you for joining us on the podcast today. So, yeah, the the wastewater surveillance program. I guess for a lot of people listening to the podcast. This might be the first time they've heard of it. Um, so I thought it might be a good idea just to start out with a little bit about, in general, um, in sort of more simple terms, what that is, the, the actual programme itself. A little bit about how that came about and how the three of you and others have maybe came to work together on that project as well. I'm not sure who wants to take that one first. Well, I suppose I can start a, a little bit with the background um, of what the project, the programme is, and then uh, I suppose if, if Jenny and John want to, to discuss about uh, how, how we all came to work together. But basically, the, the premise of, of wastewater surveillance is that everybody pees and everybody poos. Um, we spend a long time during COVID testing people individually to determine levels of virus in the community but actually another way is to look for it in wastewater um, and this really is a good way to avoid the problems associated with testing individuals I mean I think we all know stories about people who didn't want to test or didn't test for whatever reason but this is a way that avoids people having to go to the testing centre um, and we can monitor levels of SARS-CoV-2 in the community um, using one sample so for for example, we could take a sample from the wastewater treatment works in Belfast um, that will cover a large portion of the population. Um, 
And so that's really where my um, kind of uh, experience with uh, with the wastewater program started. But we've also know that we can use wastewater to look for another, a lot of other things as well. And we'll maybe talk about that later in the podcast. But how the program came about in Northern Ireland, I think really, John, that was your uh, instigation to begin with. So, yeah. So when COVID first started, um, there was uh, a movement um, in the global wastewater community where um, it became apparent that you could test uh, and track levels of, of, of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, which is obviously the virus which causes uh, COVID-19, and you could correlate those levels um, within the wastewater with infection in the community. So you had this idea of what was happening at a community level, and then you could go on and sequence, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, and identify what those variants were. So a number of these wastewater surveillance programs began to develop um, in other countries. Um, And there was then a conversation that started within Northern Ireland from various different sources that all came together. There was colleagues within the Department of Health who were asking, could we do this in Northern Ireland? Um, There was uh, some work being done in the Republic of Ireland um, in University College Dublin with, with colleagues there. And we really started through a joint research proposal to Science Foundation Ireland and our Department for Economy under their emergency COVID uh, funding. And so then uh, I started to to formulate that application and and reached out to to Deirdre and and to Jenny and to other colleagues uh, within the university who were involved in next generation sequencing, etc. And we put together a short six-month application to uh, really develop the techniques here in Northern Ireland. And that then led to the establishment of a wider programme based on the success of of what we were able to show here in Northern Ireland, that we could also track the levels of SARS-CoV-2 in the community. We could also correlate that with infection within the community. And we could also sequence and tell the Department of Health what variant, both the major variant and what minor variants were circulating um, within the province. And so that became really a useful toolbox for them to so take forward. I think with that in mind, that's a really great overview of what the, the project is and what the project does. And Deirdre, as you mentioned, it's starting to widen out now in terms of, of what you guys can detect with the technology. I thought, again, for maybe a slightly different audience um, that are listening to the podcast today, um, more on the science side of things in terms of, of how the technology works. We've chatted a little bit this about this before, you know, before we sat down in front of the microphones and there have been things like next generation sequencing being mentioned, geographic information s- systems as well. So could I ask maybe each of you to give a little bit of an overview about how the system works generally, how all these different parts kind of come together to allow you guys to generate this data that can then be used and allow us to understand what's going on at a wider level. So I suppose the the, the easiest way to to describe it would be to talk about the pipeline, and a, a, that's no pun intended, but <laughs> from how we get um, the the data coming into the lab um, or the, the, the basic sample coming into the lab to how we generate useful information on, on the dashboard. So I suppose if we all talk a bit about that as well, sort of and, you know, really about the sample coming into the lab. And, and it's a very different sample to, to that which we would normally be used to looking at because, you know, if we think about a, a sputum or a clinical sample coming in, we're usually looking for a very high number of, uh, copy number of the 
virus, bacteria, whatever it is of interest in a very concentrated sample. Whereas actually with the sewage, with the wastewater, it's completely the other way around. We're looking for a very, very small number of um, copies in a very dilute sample. So the first challenge that we had was to really establish how we would effectively concentrate the sample in a way that would be time efficient um, and people efficient because we didn't have a large number of people to do this but also allowed us to get around some of the supply issues um, and so we developed um, a method using these concentrating pipettes where we took a large volume of the sample um, we spun that down to get rid of kind of the larger debris and then put it into this concentrating pipette and we got a very small volume out of that um, we were then able to um, kind of leverage on some of the automated systems that we had already in place um, to uh, set up um, our PCR reactions, do our automated nucleic acid extractions using the Rush MagnaPure system. Um, and that was really good again because we just hit that at the right time in the pandemic where those were not being reserved for purely clinical research lab use. So what we lacked in people, we made up for in really robust automated systems. So once we have our nucleic acid out, then we're going to do our PCR. Um, we had to really develop a, a one that was more bespoke for um, uh, you know, our environmental samples. Um, and that has really stood us in quite good stead because we've been looking for two targets. Um, and, uh, it, you know, we've been able to really develop that quite nicely. Once we have that, then we're going to quantify the amount of viral target that we're seeing in the sample, work out how many gene copies per litre that is, and then with Jenny's team, um, we work out a population-based analysis of that. Um, I suppose the best way to then is to describe how we would then take that data and pass that on to Jenny's mm -hmm. team who would present the dashboard and then mm -hmm. we can come back to talk about the fancier things that we do after that. So thank you, Deirdre. I mean, I think um, in our um, research project, which developed then into, you know, the, the Northern Ireland um, monitoring uh, scheme for wastewater and COVID. Um, starting from a, a couple of samples, obviously that only tells you the information that that um, catchment of the wastewater or the sewer shed, as some, some countries call it. Um, but obviously we, we really, um, working with our colleagues in the different agencies, wanted to make sure that we had a geographic uh, representation of COVID across Northern Ireland. And so that meant, as Deidre said, working out how many samples we might need, how many wastewater catchment areas we would need to sample from um, to cover um, the majority of the population. But for the majority of the population in Northern Ireland, that would probably mean just sampling Belfast. And obviously that doesn't give us a really good geographic spread or a, a really information about what's happening across Northern Ireland. So we worked out um, using the population density, the population densities covered by the different uh, uh, wastewater catchment areas, but also with a geographic um, variation. So where would we need to cover um, and sample from across Northern Ireland to have sufficient information to give us information on how COVID might be moving or spreading um, or being transmitted across Northern Ireland? Once we have that information, once the samples come back and the information from the lab comes back, um, then we can then map that onto a geographical information system or GIS. And we did that in the form of a dashboard. 
Um, we didn't make it a public dashboard, but what we did was we, create, we um, provided information based on the wastewater catchment areas, but then also um, which uh, Northern Ireland district they fell into, um, which ward they were in, so that then the um, uh, health and social care areas could be seen in terms of where COVID was either increasing or decreasing. Um, and we made that dashboard available to our different agencies who are involved in this, including um, the public health agency. Um, and they were using that on a weekly basis then so that the wastewater COVID data became part of the overall Northern Ireland COVID surveillance information. John, yourself, in terms of the input and in, in terms of all this and, and how this all works, the, the sort of next generation sequencing bit around that, how does that kind of feed into how all this data comes together and how we go forward and use it? So what, what we're up to at the minute really in the discussion is we have a level of SARS-CoV-2 and we can normalise that with, through Jenny's team and give an indication of, of the levels which are in the population and, and we'll see whether that is rising or whether that is falling. Um, and use that as a, a predictive tool in, in many ways to inform our uh, clinical colleagues as to, as to what is going to happen in the next few days, next few weeks. But we also want to know what, what variant is out there. Um, we want to be able to tell if there's a new variant, um, either a new global variant, which is coming into Northern Ireland uh, for, for the first time, or indeed whether Northern Ireland is somehow generating its own variant, which could then spread mm. out from Northern Ireland globally. Uh, so we do that in a, in a number of different ways. We, we can look and see what um, known variants are there using, using more advanced uh, PCR technology called digital drop uh, PCR technology. Um, or we can, we can sequence. So we can take the, uh, the nucleic acid that, that we have isolated out from our sewage sample that we have looked and, and done a, our PCR on to see if there's SARS-CoV-2 there. Um, and then we can we can sequence that. Mm. And in sequencing that, then that, that will give us um, the sequence of all the different SARS-CoV-2 variants that are there. So uh, as an analogy, if, if you or, or someone listening has, has COVID mm. and we were to take a sample from them and, and sequence that, they would be most likely infected with one uh, variant yeah. of COVID. So it's very easy to sequence and tell you what that is. But if we take Belfast Wastewater Treatment Works, in one sample from Belfast, we have representation of 250,000 people. So there's all those variants that are there. So what, and because SARS-CoV-2, as it moves through your body and into the sewage treatment works, it, it's not infectious. It, it, it gets all broken up into small little chunks. We have to take that sequence data and reassemble all those chunks and try and find out not only what the main variant is, but what sub-variants might be there and if there's any new variants. Now, we have some very clever uh, bioinformaticians here at Queen's and, and um, we linked in with, with our chair of uh, computational biology in the School of Biological Sciences, Professor Chris Creevey. And Chris's team then developed this, this pipeline, uh, our bioinformatic pipeline, we constant use of the word pipeline in this, <laughs> um, which allowed us to do that. And, and, and I, I would feel confident as I say, we, we probably lead the world in many ways in, in that bioinformatic pipeline and in the way that we can do it. And that has allowed us then to, to give the Department of Health and, you know, warning and say, this variant is now here, um, it's rising, this variant is decreasing. 
and also then if we have any potentially new variants in Northern Ireland. And we have picked up sub-variants in Northern Ireland which have unique um, uh, mutations in them. Um, they will maybe rise a little bit and then will fall away because the, the newer variants, the big variants that you would hear about in the news are, are much uh, fitter <laughs> and, and just wipe any sub-variants out and, and become the dominant variant. But what we ultimately want to see in this is that we want, when we test our, our wastewater, uh, or we don't have to test wastewater from a wastewater treatment works, we can test wastewater from an individual building or a, an institution like Queen's University Belfast or a factory. We don't want to have positive results. Ultimately, the power of this is that our results are negative. Mm. And so there is no COVID-19. So you're assured in your building or in Northern Ireland that we have no covid or we have no other pathogen of particular interest that we're doing, such as respiratory sensitive virus or influenza or polio. And wastewater surveillance becomes then a sentinel service. So we want zero results, and then we want to be able to pick up if there is a, a spike in infection. Of course, at the minute, we don't have that. SARS-CoV-2 is still here, and we still have a lot of it around. Um, it's still in our wastewater. But that's where wastewater surveillance should be. Mm -hmm. It should be at a place where we're looking at zero, 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 and then a spike, as yeah. opposed to level, 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 increased level. I think that yeah gives a really interesting overview about how all those different bits come together. You know, and it's it's all the different expertise that come together to make this full system that allows us to pull all that stuff. And a, a couple of you have mentioned that the different agencies that you've worked with as part of this. Um, you know, a lot of the information that you are generating is being fed out to those but i imagine that you're you're working with those partners as well to be able to get access to the stuff that you need to test to be able to make these decisions as well so there's the likes of the department of health there's the likes of you know the, the guys that look after agriculture rural affairs and all of those sorts of things as well could you talk to us a little bit about how those partnerships work who you are working with what they kind of feed in or what you feed out to them um how they maybe use that as well so once that data goes to the like like the public health agency what do they do with that once they they know that sort of information i suppose maybe i take the first question because it links a wee bit into what we said at the start and and how the how the program started and then i'll pass over to jenny and to, to deirdre to talk more about the interaction say with with public health um, but it was really the department of agriculture environment and rural affairs um, in that initial uh, Science Foundation Ireland Department for the Economy application that, that were really the instigators of this and, and really the great supporters of this and it was um, it, it was uh, Alistair Carson and, 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 and Paul Devine really in the Department of Agriculture who really uh, drove this to get this started um, in Northern Ireland um, and obviously then you know there was a very close association then with, with Northern Ireland Water um, and, and you know, in Northern Ireland Water, providing those samples and mm -hmm. access to sites and, and installation of their auto samplers. Um, eventually, then, as we got the program established, that responsibility moved from the Department of Agriculture, Environment, and Rural Affairs over into the Department of Health and, and Public Health. And Deirdre and, and Jenny can talk more about about that particular interaction. Um, so yeah, I mean, as as we've said, I don't think any of us have maybe worked on a, a project with so many collaborator collaborators across Queens, but then with the other agencies out, outside Queens. So, um, you know, really, we we have a really 
um, good working relationship with colleagues in, in public health and also in the health and social care trusts over uh, with colleagues in the Royal um, in the regional virology lab who have been really helpful in um, you know kind of sharing techniques and equipment and um, and insight into the clinical side of it so um, I think our major interaction with public health was really correlating the levels of virus that we saw in wastewater with the levels that we saw in the clinical cases. Um, initially, that was quite easy because, you know, there was lots of testing going on and we could get access to that testing data. Then once testing became more lateral flow based and reporting of that testing became difficult, um, that became a, a bit more of a challenge all round um, and then um, you know eventually we got to the point where the wastewater was the only COVID surveillance going on um, apart from stuff that would come into hospitals so um, really trying to work out with them how we could provide that information in a way that would be useful to them was a bit of a challenge and we we worked out some very complicated mathematical algorithms with colleagues um, based on a model developed in uh, in South Carolina um, and from that we're able to extrapolate the number of likely infected cases um, based on our wastewater data so that was a really big step forward and we work quite closely with colleagues in order to do that um, so I think that that's really the way in which that data is used we did have a lot during COVID of what we termed code browns where there would be outbreaks at particular cases and we would we would be invited in to sample at a specific location um, and so that really was quite interesting being on those meetings because you would have lots of different agencies um, lots of different backgrounds people who were working in the particular areas that are involved health and safety executive um, all kind of really coming together to see you know was this a, a a major incident how we could provide information that would support decision making around mobile testing units vaccinations all those kind of different aspects so that was very interesting to be on the on the inside looking out at that um, I think I suppose the other thing that I'd, I'd like to add is that I think in Northern Ireland we did and um, we do have a unique opportunity because we do work very closely um, with our colleagues across different agencies um, and one example of that and I think it, at the at beginning of COVID, COVID everybody wanted to do their part and there was a very good feeling of how can we help and one really example a good example of that I think is how we work with Northern Ireland Water um, Northern Ireland Water have an existing, I suppose, GIS system um, for their sewers, for their um, wastewater um, catchments, and they made that available to us. So we had a couple of research fellows working very closely with our colleagues in Northern Ireland Water, and we were able to access the, the information that we required to do our analysis. And that involves sampling, but it also involved then exactly where those samples were taken from and the catchment or that sewer, sewer shed that that would cover in terms of population. And that was really important, especially in those in more emergency response mm -hmm. opportunities uh, right at the beginning um, when the, there wasn't um, widespread testing, it was more mobile testing. And so again, we were able to work very closely with the agencies to try and work out for public health agency, for Department of Health, where they needed to move those mobile testing units to. Um, so I, I suppose I think this is a very good example of how um, agencies working together 
can really produce a very rapid response monitoring um, uh, system and, uh, and um, opportunity where all of these different people are coming together. And the wastewater data and surveillance data was as important as any of the other testing data. And as Deidre said at one point, it was the only way we had um, to monitor the, the levels of, of um, COVID in the, in the uh, community. Um, but it was part of the regular reporting um, in term four Department of Health for a public health agency. And I think if you talk to anyone in the, you know, in the Department of Health or whatever, you know, in the uh, PHA or whatever, as, as a government program, this is one of the first programs that brought together Department of Agriculture, Environment, Rural Affairs, the Environment Agency, Department for Infrastructure, Department for Health and Public Health in one program. I think we also need to, to, to mention another sort of external organisation to those government uh, programmes, and that's a, an organisation called Ag Research. Um, one of the challenges that we have in, for Jenny's team was this idea of normalisation. So if we if we take a wastewater treatment works, like at the minute we're sitting in this uh, room, it's, it's blue skies outside. Why I'm sitting in this room doing a <laughs> podcast when there's blue skies outside, I don't know. But... If, you, if we look at the wastewater at the minute going into a wastewater treatment works, it will be very strong, as we would call it, because there's no there's no runoff from, from rainfall. Yeah. Whereas if, if we have a typical Northern Irish summer day where it has rained for, for 12 hours, the wastewater will be very dilute because obviously you've got that rainfall. So if we're measuring those SARS-CoV-2 levels between today and a day when it is very wet, SARS-CoV-2 levels are going to be high today, they're going to be low when it's wet, because of that rainfall dilution. So we have to know whether it's actually rainfall dilution or whether there's a genuine decrease within the SARS-CoV-2 levels. So the way that we would normally do that is you would measure some sort of indicator coming into the wastewater treatment works, probably flow. Mm -hmm. um, flow is quite difficult in Northern Ireland. We have various different flow metering technologies. You know, They're not always easy to get the data because they're not always remote. So we had to come up with a new way of doing that. Now, Ag Research is a, is, a, is a levy body for the agricultural industry, um, and they have a nice program called Grass Check. And Grass Check is, uh, and the Grass Check program involves installing these 40 internet link weather stations in farms across Northern Ireland. And that is to allow farmers to predict levels of grass growth. So, Ag Research were very good in that they allowed us access to those interlink linked weather stations, which means that we could get um, direct real-time information on rainfall. So Jenny's team then came up with a very clever algorithm, which was able to convert that rainfall data into flow levels going into our wastewater treatment works, and thus predict what the flow into a wastewater treatment works would be over the next 12 to 24 hours, because obviously there's time lag between mm. the rainfalls yeah. to when it enters <coughs> into the wastewater treatment system. And again, that is unique to the Northern Irish programme. That is something that we have pioneered and developed. And it's a very useful tool, both for, for wastewater management, but could also be used in, in other countries where this flow metering and, and other, these other methods are more difficult. So, so again, with, without that cooperation of ag research, uh, you know, that fundamental part of normalising the data wouldn't have been possible. So, so it, I think this is an example of our project of how all government agencies and, and, and other external bodies can come together and, and to do this in a very, very short timeline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really sort of stellar example of 
collaboration across expertise sets across universities and all these public bodies and private bodies as well which is fantastic to hear it all sounds like it went very smoothly from the beginning um I'm guessing that there might have been a few challenges or hiccups along the way in terms of getting it to, to the point that you've got it to now. And I just wanted to ask a little bit about that. So I guess, and John, you've touched a little bit on the sort of some of the more scientific challenges in terms of, of normalizing those ty- types of things. Were there any other more initial challenges in terms of the science and getting that up and running? And I know you've mentioned about it being in short timelines as well, um, the, the challenges in making that happen. Um, and then also the kind of challenges around that that infrastructure and it's the collaboration is great, but it's there's obviously gonna be a bit of time lag in terms of getting things sort of introduced and, and sort of rolled out. So what were the challenges there in terms of that bigger picture too? I think some of the main challenges were around staffing and uh, lab space. Mm. So, um, uh, initially, we were really running this out of uh, out of our lab on on the third floor in the MBC. <laughs> that worked reasonably well because we uh, didn't have a full complement of students back in the lab. Um, but I think really then it was very obvious that we needed you know some kind of dedicated space. So then we were down in the the hammerhead of the MBC. But there was a challenge in getting um, equipment in in a very short time scale and people in to run the equipment and and just getting things physically up and running. It's all well and good to say you're going to order in a PCR machine, but actually when you're ordering in the PCR machine and saying, but we need it here now mm-hmm. um, is is quite um, is quite challenging. And there's lots of different reasons why that's challenging. Some of it's to do with the way in which things have to be ordered through mm-hmm. the university. Some of it's to do with suppliers and supply chains. But I think those I think were the biggest sleepless nights maybe was around the getting in the equipment. And also I think there was um, you know, a lot of the work and the programme was a little bit reactive. You know, we were in the middle of a pandemic and the 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 the, the ask would come in, can you do this number of sites and we need it done as soon as possible and it was really up to us to try and make that, that happen. Um, and so that was definitely just the logistics of getting people and equipment and space to do that work, I think, were, were the main challenges. Once we got those in, actually, I think we did pretty well on the science and getting the science up and running. Um, but I think those were the, from my memory, maybe I've blocked out <laughs> the other things. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's worth, worth just noting that, you know, the faculty, um, professional services teams really, yes. really stepped up to the mark in that. And, and, and without them, those sort of logistical issues around recruitment, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, there was a, you know, they were very uh, supportive of, of, of fast turnaround recruitment. Um, the finance teams uh, in there, um, both in terms of, of of getting budgets ready and and getting purchasing decisions made, etc., were, were were just you know excellent and, and really really helped you know and take away that stress. Um, I think we we have to also say that we we managed to recruit some really superb individuals onto the project, and you know we can sit here and talk about what we did in, in the project, but we didn't really do anything on the project. We managed the project. It was the guys on the ground who actually got the systems up and running, got the the assays working, um, developed the techniques that that we have. Um, I think it's worth saying that you know we have a very fast turnaround of samples um, compared. To potentially other other 
wastewater surveillance programs, we can turn around a sample and, and get a result within six to, to eight hours, where, where others, you know, we're, we're 24 hours up to three, four days. And that's just testament to the fact that the guys in the lab have really worked very hard to develop that, that pipeline and the methodologies. And the same with, with Jenny's team, as I say, some of the stuff that they have done around the data and analytics, etc., has, has, has been fantastic. I think that's really important, John, because actually we do come in with some quite outrageous requests on a regular basis. You know, you're already working really hard, but do you think we could also look for X, Y, Z in in the in the wastewater? And they've risen to that challenge absolutely admirably. And as a result, we've got some really very useful and lovely data based on, on the presence of other viruses and the detection of other viruses in the wastewater. So, you know, I think when they hear that, do you think we could, there's um, a bit of a, what? <laughs> what now? <laughs> and and um, so, sometimes that's... we're not at the state, sometimes they come to us and say, oh, by the way, we can also detect X, Y, and yes, Z because exactly. they have done it themselves oh, and we yeah. haven't thought of it. Yeah. And that those are the conversations we love to have. Yeah, I mean, I suppose just to, to add to that, yeah. and again, I would just um, reiterate the quality of the research um, colleagues, research fellows that we were able to employ. One of the challenges was always out of our control but was the short-term nature of funding mm. um, because obviously this is Department of Health funding and uh, it can't be um, assured for a number of uh, sort of a longer period of time so you know to credit to our research assistants and research fellows who were able to work to that quality but sometimes not knowing whether they had a job for the next mm. you know couple of months and it always seemed to come at the last minute, um, but they never lost that commitment and enthusiasm to do the work. Um, but I, you know, like Deirdre, you know, there's, there's little things like what is the best way to present the data so that um, it's not just uh, apparent to us what's happening, but actually our colleagues in PHA or Department of Health can actually understand the message. Um, and wastewater, again, there's lots of challenges and everybody was facing the same challenge internationally in terms of what does it actually represent and how what's the best way to present the data, including normalisation. And again, we had um, special challenges here in Northern Ireland. Um, but I think one of the um, really positive things coming out of all of those challenges was it um, we worked with our colleagues in the devolved countries, mm -hmm. so in Scotland, Wales and England, um, and we were a regular part of meetings where we were able to discuss the challenges because we were all facing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, that was reassuring. It helped our research fellows as well because they were in those conversations mm -hmm. um, so they could actually speak to others who were having the same challenges. Um, and that is continuing um, so we're all aware that we've learned a lot of lessons from this program that can be used for other pathogens. Um, so we're continuing to have those conversations um, right across the, the devolved countries. So I think on that note, I mean, there's been a, a few mentions of it in terms of COVID's obviously made a big part of that. John, you mentioned earlier on, it's not going away um, and it's still there and it's, it's still very much appearing in, in the work that you're doing. But there is that sort of whole other world of other pathogens out there in terms of, of the technology. So could you tell us a little bit about the development of the work so far, where you maybe see that going in terms of the future of the technology? You know, is there commercialization elements to this as well in terms of could people have these these systems connected to their, their home systems and be, you know, keeping an eye on their, their, their home sort of network, so to speak, in terms of, of that sort of thing? How do you see the future of this looking? 
Um, so obviously you're going to expect us to say this, but we are very uh, keen to <laughs> continue with this work. Um, but but I think we've I think I think what we needed to get out of our heads was that we could only look for things that might be enteric pathogens in sewage, and I think getting away from that established dogma to, to, to the fact that actually yes you can see um, respiratory pathogens in wastewater was quite a big leap and I think once we established that that then really allowed us to just go and look for things that we might not have initially expected to find so I think maybe the RSV respiratory and syncytial virus is one that we're very particularly keen to take forward um, uh, RSV is a virus that um, predominantly affects you know, the very young and the very old. Um, it often will lead to children being um, in hospital and really is that thing that results in the overcrowding of the mm-hmm. NICUs and, and, and the peds intensive care at that very early stage. Um, there is a prophylactic treatment available for it which needs to be administered in the right window of time that's much more of a challenge currently because there's been these out-of-season um, outbreaks of RSV. So, for example, we saw big outbreaks in the summer. It's normally a wintertime virus, but um, we just don't know whether that's an impact of COVID and the, um, the you know, COVID prevention measures that everything's just out of out of kilter. But what our clinical colleagues told us was that it would be really good to know when RSV is going to hit so that they can kind of put in place kind of the resources that would be necessary to deal with that. Um, And also where it goes to when it's not in the clinic. So we're able to monitor over a couple of years um, or a year at least for for RSV levels in in the wastewater. And we're able to see that actually we saw two distinct types, um, uh, which correlated to two distinct peaks. So it could be grumbling at a very low level in the community, but actually we think that it's um, maybe kind of coming in from other areas or it's very similar to what we see in other countries. Um, but the fact that we could predict when levels of clinical cases were going to rise um, by what we saw in the wastewater um, was described as a game changer, um, uh, which I'm very happy that we all take <laughs> that. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's clinically useful information, you know, just to continue that collaboration with our clinical colleagues and the clinical labs to say, look, guys, we're seeing an increase here in the wastewater we might need to think about how we're going to protect our most vulnerable kids and also our kind of older adults. Um, you know, there's now vaccines available for those older adults, um, you know, which, uh, you know, would be hopefully useful in, in keeping the burden of disease amongst our elder population down as well. So that's one, but we also look for flu and um, other adenoviruses and, you know, maybe John or Jenny would like to chat about those. Well, obviously we're looking at uh, you know influenza and uh, you know inner wastewater and uh, as as Deirdre said you know we have, we have adenovirus we've enterovirus we've norovirus and um, polio mm-hmm. you know I'm sure listeners will have heard of the, the the detection of polio for the first in in wastewater treatment uh, works in in London so so we we can obviously look for that uh, within our wastewater treatment systems but I think we we're not just confined to looking at um, the wastewater treatment sites as I said you can look at uh, whether you know a commercial building, you can go to halls of residence, you can go to a hospital, but that's within the clinical sector. But there's also a, uh, you know, the whole agri-food sector as well, um, where we can start to look at those sort of more agricultural pathogens, and um, whether that be in a, you know, a, a commercial poultry or cattle or, or pig facility, 
Um, and we're not just limited to, to wastewater either. Um, we, we have started and, and have been doing quite a bit on, on air sampling and, and monitoring SARS-CoV-2 levels in air um, in, uh, for, for, for so local trusts. Um, so, so we can, you know, we can have a full range of different different pathogens. You know, we're, we're, for example, in the wastewater, we're not only detecting human influenza, we're detecting avian influenza, and, and we, we know about the big avian influenza outbreak um, that are happening at the minute. So, so you can really use these this ideas of pathogen surveillance, whether it be uh, wastewater or, or, or air. Um, and not just wastewater, but you know, farm runoff <laughs> or uh, drinking water analysis to give an idea of, of, of what's around the corner. I often talk about that this type of surveillance is, is us seeing around the corner. It's, it's seeing what's coming down the line because with RSV or with influenza or SARS-CoV-2, you know, we are days to weeks ahead of when you're starting to see those, mm-hmm. those peaks yeah. in clinical cases. So it allows you to, to manage uh, and it allows you to manage infection and it allows you to manage infection whether that be in a an agricultural setting where you could shut down a house or in a commercial setting where you can enhance cleaning you can advise staff that there's norovirus in the building if you're feeling unwell please don't come into work you know so there's there's all those sort of logistical management things that this this can detect for what is a pretty inexpensive way of doing something compared to if you were to test everyone uh, within a building or within a community or every animal on a farm. So yeah, it sounds like, you know, I, I don't know if you want to add anything in terms of the development of the future from your side. Well, I, I suppose the the only thing that I'd like to add, I think, is um, I think we've moved away from the idea that the optimum is only one or two samples, maybe in the highest population areas, um, to if you have a geographic spread of sampling, whether that's near source or whether it's in the community through um, sort of wastewater catchments or or other um, sort of areas, then it gives you much more information that you then can map, you can model or predict, uh, as John says, around the corner, and then you can present it so that others can actually see that information. So I suppose that's my last plea that, you know, don't only think about one or two samples, but I know there's a cost implication, mm-hmm. but think of that geographic distribution so that we have much more information about the whole of the the country uh, rather than just a few pockets of population. Absolutely. Um, folks, this has been a really interesting conversation. I think it's, for me, it's been really interesting to see how COVID has kind of necessitated the technology and, and what you guys have done in terms of the enormous work and even just making this work logistically, let alone the science that kind of runs it in the background. Um, the future certainly sounds bright for it too. So, you know, being able to look for all of these different things and the advantage that that brings is, is really fantastic. And it'll be really interesting to, to see what you guys all work on and, and, and develop in the future. And if we're putting these things on our houses and getting app updates telling us how safe the water going into and coming out of our houses is going to be in, in the near future. So at this point, I just want to say thanks very much um, to the three of you. Um, just to thank Professor Jennifer McKinley from the School of Natural and Built Environment. Professor John McGrath from the School of Biological Sciences, rather, and Dr. Deirdre Gilpin from our very own School of Pharmacy. Thank you all again for taking the time to, to speak with me today about your research work. We'll hopefully welcome you again onto the podcast again very soon to talk about a few other things. Um, but that's everything from the podcast for now. Thanks very much to everybody for listening, and we'll see you on the next podcast. So thanks again.